This spot is brought to you by Eaton Vance, the symbol of advanced investing. What's inside your ETF? With Parametric Equity Premium Income ETF, you know. Inside, you'll find institutional expertise from a specialized team with deep derivatives experience. Get to know what's inside PAPI, the symbol of alternative income, at eatonvance.com symbols. Before investing, prospective investors should carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. The current prospectus contains this and other information and is available at eatonvance.com. Read the prospectus carefully before investing. Not FDIC insured. Offer no bank guarantee. May lose value. Not insured by any federal government agency. Not a deposit. Investments involve risk. Principal loss is possible. Distributed by Foresight Fund Services, LLC. The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. Can Saudi Arabia build the utopian city of the future? And will President Trump's visit to China yield deals aplenty or be an orbless flop? These are the issues we'll be tackling in this week's Views Room, a weekly conversation among Breaking Views columnists about the ups and downs of the world of finance. I'm Anthony Curry and my co-host is Jennifer Saber. Hi, Jen. Hello. Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman of Saudi Arabia has a grand plan to invest $500 billion in the city of the future. He's allocated 26,500 square kilometers of the kingdom's territory in the Red Sea to the project. That's almost the size of either Massachusetts or Belgium. Take your pick. Breaking Views Global Editor Rob Cox joins us to explain what this all means. Rob, thanks for coming on. Pleasure, Anthony. Now, tell us, the Crown Prince unveiled this idea last week, the Future Investment Initiative in Riyadh, and you were there. Now, I've got to say, reading some of how this has been described by the, the authorities there, it sounds like a cross between like a university campus and Disney World. I mean, well, what is this? I mean, what, what's, the, what's the deal here? The Crown Prince has kind of recognized um, something that I think is, is not that hard to see from the outside, which is that Saudi Arabia, as it has existed for the last, well, 85 years, but really for the last 30 or 40 years, um, as in a place where social norms are extremely conservative. I mean, it, he is also, don't forget his father's title, the king's title is keeper of the two mosques, right, of Mecca and Medina. Um, I think they've recognized that in the future they're going to have to find some way to accommodate highfalutin ideas like women driving, which they have done, um, women taking a more active role in society and in the economy. Because really, if you look, you know, 15 years down the road, the price of oil, the dependence on oil yeah. is going to be become a problem. So, so he's, I think he's a real reformer. And I think this idea in some ways is to say to people, look, if you don't like living under the current circumstances, don't worry, I'm still going to create this alternative society um, that will accommodate 4 million plus people and in which the rules will be set by those living there, which sounds a bit like democracy, but it's a little more like rules will be set by the entrepreneurs who govern the place. Remember, one of the most sort of important scoops we got out of the whole thing was actually from a an interview we had with the crown prince in which he told us that they would take this this city neon public one day so it sounds like uh, burning man it's <laughs> no it is not like burning man i i even asked the crown prince pretty sure drugs won't be allowed i know no i asked him if you would be able to uh, purchase alcohol in neon in the future and his his response wasn't no remember it's a dry country you cannot legally find alcohol i should say he said uh well the border of egypt is right there there'll be a bridge over the red sea and you'll you can do lots of things in Egypt that you can't do there, which somewhat undercuts his point about all the rules will be set by those who govern or the entrepreneurs who populate this place. But what he's trying to do is set up an alternative vision for his country. Remember, 33 million subjects in the kingdom, 70% of them are 
are his age or under. He's 32. You know, these these are people who are going to want something different, um, something that hasn't really been uh, part of Saudi society really since uh, 1979. I think this this is a country which is heavily dependent on oil wealth. And you look at other countries in the region, they have managed to um, reduce that somewhat, or at least they've diversified. Well, or, you were just in Dubai. You saw yeah. that this is a country that that's a, uh, an emirate that had has had no oil and had to do the alternative, yeah, it's had to do other things. Yeah. It's had to become a financial center, a transportation hub, yeah, it's, a port it's city. It's compromised um, right. quite well. I mean, you still have some still have some of the rules in place. You, know, you can get alcohol, but it's you know, you have to it's go under to a hotel certain and, circumstances. Yeah. yeah, but I mean, you look at those countries to see. Okay, you've diversified your revenue stream. Saudi Arabia hasn't done that. It's, it's trying to diversify its investments. So you know, the, the, the public investment fund, which is going to be responsible for this $500 billion, has invested in, what, Uber and other things, the, the, a way to try and get out of the, the, yes. the, the oil-only economy. But they need to do a lot more than that just to get there. I mean, it is the, one of the largest um, in, the, in the region uh, population-wise, I mean, the biggest think, stock yeah. market, but it's still If you think about there. it, I mean, it's, it's what, he's, what he is attempting to undertake is not the kind of thing you do without a revolution in most yeah. countries. I mean, to transform, transfigure this economy um, and its social norms to, in some way is going to be, it, it really is on an extraordinary vision. It's Vision 2030. That's the, the actual program that, that he and his father, um, the king, talk about. But one of the most important things that came out of this, so you can say it's an economic transformation, but for most people, that you can't just have an economic transformation without changing in some way the social fabric. And the, the number that came out, it wasn't a dollar figure, it wasn't reals, it was the, the year 1979. And, and I didn't really appreciate that fully when, it, when he spoke, but I did some research and a lot of people were talking about it after, and I think it started to sink in. 1979 was the year of the, the siege uh, by Islamic fundamentalists of the Grand Mosque in Mecca. And as a result of that, uh, after the standoff was resolved, they, uh, the, the king at the time, uh, Khaled, he basically decided to do a deal with the clerics. His solution was actually more religion, so a stronger interpretation of al-Sharia law. He handed them more power. And you've had this, this sort of um, alliance between the, the, uh, the monarchy and the Wahhabist clerics, which is really the modern, the, what we know, I wouldn't call it modern, but today's Saudi Arabia, where um, women are stoned for adultery, where, uh, you know, the criminal so, justice So were you saying that joke. prior to 1979, it was a, a little more... It was um, going in the direction of, not unlike, let's say, Iran, which before the 78 revolution in which the Pahlavis were, were sort of moving towards a more open society, that didn't work out so well when it was actually young people who wanted a more radical society, as it were. Uh, they decided to go with that, it, the Sauds, in 1979. So what he said when he said, we're going back to pre-1979, in most places you think, whoa, you're going back to like an era of, you know, I don't know, bell-bottom jeans and like, um, you know, bad but, but hairstyles. But it's really progress. He, it, it denoted progress because yeah. he's going He's going to take this. It's, it's almost like saying the last 40 years has been an aberration and was was were lost years for our society. This is pretty radical coming from this guy. So, uh, Rob, you were there for Davos in the desert. Uh, did you get a sense from the people there? I mean, not the people that were flying in, but the people of Saudi Arabia, what the sentiment is. Are they when excited he's, about this? Yeah, when, they... when the crown prince made these remarks and talked about going back to a more moderate form of Islam, the place exploded. You know, all of the, and these were Saudis who were, it got the most applause of anything he said throughout the, the entire conference. So now these are folks showing up in their Maybox 
<laughs> so I'm not sure they're perfectly representative of the other 32.999 million people in the country, but it is an indication. I think there's enough people there that realize something has to be done. Something has to give. If he doesn't make these reforms quite radically um, and offer a vision, as I think Neom is, sort of a vision for what the society Neom is the name like. of the city. Neom is, this, is the city. I think if he doesn't do that, he realizes that he could be, frankly, the last monarch in this. Uh, how do, how does he ensure that he isn't by doing this? Because, I mean, if you, the, the Wahhabis have a lot of power. I mean, like you said, women get stoned in the street. There are beheadings in the street. This is a big step to take for a country which still has a lot of power in the hands of the uh, Islamic class. I think he's betting on the 70 percent of the, of the people in the country who are under the age of 30. Now, this is a guy who apparently bought a $500 million yacht like a year or two ago. So he is hardly a man of the people. Um, but but he has the touch. When someone on that panel said, you know, you're obviously the greatest person in the world type, you know, buttered him up. He said, I am just one of my subjects. I'm only as good as the people um, who, who, who I represent. The folks there, Saudis, were saying to me, that is not the kind of language we'd ever heard from a king or a sovereign in this country before much less the fact that he would even be there on the dais being interviewed by so Maria Bartiromo. I think I think they do buy it. And again, like I think they have to buy it. They know there's going to be pain here. I think the monarchy is is vast. Like there are lots of cousins and nephews and print and all sorts of folks. I think they have to recognize that uh, that there's going to be a new order, new way of doing business. You can't just be siphoning off oil wealth. Certainly something like the Saudi Aramco IPO and the transparency that that should bring you, know, you will see where the money goes. I think all that kind of stuff scares the hell out of these folks. But at the same time, they recognize if they don't do it, really the alternative is something like a revolution or an overthrow by the young people in the country. All right. I, look, we, there's plenty more we could ask you. We didn't even really get on to whether this city could, could work out or not, regardless of culture. But let's leave it there for now. Thanks again. Uh, and we'll speak to you again soon. On Friday, President Donald Trump embarks on a 12-day trip to Asia, visiting Japan, South Korea, Vietnam, Philippines, and China. There's potential for controversy at each stop, but what happens in China may determine whether his trip is deemed a success or a flop. Joining us from Washington are our colleagues Gina Chan and Chris Bedore. Welcome back to The Views Room. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Uh, I think what's notable about this trip is who won't be attending, kind of going along with Trump versus who is. So why don't you guys set that up? Usually uh, business people tend to go over to China specifically to try and um, pave the way when you're with a political operative. What is the situation like uh, with this trip? Yeah, it's um, been an interesting mix of uh, corporations who are going. Um, it looks like the delegation that's accompanying the president is really made up of industrial and energy companies above anyone else. Um, you see names like GE, Honeywell, um, possibly uh, Chernier Energy and some others attending. And that really reflects the White House desires to um basically announced low-hanging fruit deals and have, you know, big photo ops and press yeah. releases and signing ceremonies and that sort of thing. And unfortunately, that's where um, the financial services sector and the tech sector couldn't really deliver on because they're immersed in sort of controversial um, talks over market access issues, uh, trade investigations on intellectual property and, and other 
um, topics that wouldn't make for sort of camera-friendly well, situations. And so was that was that their choice not to attend, or was it more also that they just didn't want to be a, like seen to be aligned with President Trump? Well, I think that was more so for the tech community, but um, but not as much for financial services. I mean. They, some of them did quit, like you saw Jamie Dimon come out um, and be critical of, of Trump after um, the white supremacist rallies in, in Virginia. But overall, they've been more supportive when it comes to tax reform and the deregulatory effort. So they weren't really looking to distance themselves on this trip. But frankly, they just didn't have any sort of, quote, deliverables to, to bring to the table. And they thought it would be better to sit this one out. I mean, it was. It, it does strike me that, that those who are going uh, with the president are those who also, um, or whose companies are more aligned with some of the bigger parts or more obvious parts of Trump's overall strategy at home. You know, let's push energy, let's push, you know, uh, big industrial jobs. So, yeah, in that sense, it, it makes a, deg- a lot of sense that he does that. I mean, it's not as if any other president would do things differently, right? You want to have good photo ops and you want to have your trip to be a success. Is, is there anything that's particularly different about the way this trip is setting up, say, as opposed to how a, a President Bush or Clinton or Obama would have done it? Well, I think you do see um, Trump's sort of showmanship-like tendencies to appear more um, on these trips than with past presidents. I mean, the prime example was his trip to Saudi Arabia, where you know they were dancing with swords, and you had that strange orb that they were all touching, um, and there were obviously a lot of signing ceremonies there as well, and um, and that's something that uh, you'll see on the China trip. I mean, what's What's he's doing less of on this trip that other presidents have done are more of some of the behind the scenes um, talks that could uh, result in more comprehensive announcements, whether that's on market access or or other issues. Um, he's really only there for two days. He has a lot on his plate. Frankly, most of it is, um, I think, going to focus on North Korea as opposed to some of these business issues. So I think um, in terms of, you know, anticipating any real changes or or having talks that could lead to that, um, the business community has been a little bit more disappointed um, just knowing that this trip has other things in mind. Um, Chris, you've been uh, following the uh, wrap-up of the uh, congressional uh, party in China. How significant um, is sort of the the leadership shuffle that has occurred and the fact that uh, President uh, Xi Jinping has really cemented even more power? What what role does that play when Trump goes over to to meet uh, with them in China? Yeah, I I think it is significant in the sense that now she has much more authority, especially after having had his name written into the Chinese Communist Party constitution to handle Trump and to perhaps absorb even some sort of blow in terms of um, engaging in maybe not a trade dispute, but at least some sort of trade tension um, and potentially even offering something to the American side um, as kind of a solve for that, that he might not have been able to do if he did not have the authority that uh, was given to him at the 19th Party Congress. Um, But I think that as far as the overall, from the Chinese perspective, the playbook is pretty much the same as with previous um, administrations, U.S. administrations, when they've come to China, in the sense that um, 
you know, you mentioned uh, the the tech uh, tech community. So, I mean, Tim Cook and Mark Zuckerberg this week were in Beijing um, that's to meet with President Xi Jinping. That's a pretty classic example of how Beijing will go about trying to construct a narrative that the U.S.-China business relationship is on track, that um, the president is kind of an outlier if he wants to engage in some sort of trade dispute and essentially just control the narrative in advance of any kind of administration um, uh, visit and especially in advance of any kind of trade asks from the American side. Do you think any of that's going to happen? Um, you know, we had so much talk during the election campaign in America from Trump about how he was going to go after China for various things from you know, foreign currency manipulation to, to taking jobs away to trade. I mean, and yet so little has been done. I mean, do you think any of this is going to, is going to happen on, on, on trade disputes? Though? I mean, we, we heard so much from uh, Trump on the presidential trail last year. But he really needs the Chinese to work with him on North Korea. Otherwise, <laughs> nothing's going to happen in North Korea. So do you really think anything he's going to bring much up on, on trade? Or does it just depend on how he feels when he gets up in the morning and sees what else has come out from the Mueller investigation into Russia from the, and the FBI? And how do you see that playing out? Let's start with you, Chris. Well, I think that from the Chinese perspective, at least, um, I think they are prepared for the Trump administration to present some very large asks in terms of trade policy, um, not only during Trump's visit, but of course you have the Section 301 investigation, which is looking at an ongoing investigation that's looking at industrial policy. And uh, from what we know within the Chinese bureaucracy, the order clearly went out earlier this year that they were supposed to prepare some sort of gives to the the Trump administration. And I think that actually they're prepared in uh, financial services of all places. Um, Obviously, financial firms are not going along with the Trump administration, um, but in things like raising uh, equity caps on uh, joint ventures or other kinds of ownership within financial services, especially insurance companies and uh, securities and brokerages, um, they clearly have been making noises that they're ready to do that. Now, it all depends. Whether that happens, it all depends on um, what they would see from an American administration as far as kind of a, a give and take. Um, but they clearly are prepared for the administration to make some sort of ask, and they're, they're willing to go some way to compromise. Um, it would be rather amusing if, you know, um, after all this effort to get just industrialists and, and, and energy companies over there, that the Trump is left signing a, a deal uh, on financial services with, with no one in tow. And Gina, how, how, what do you think Trump's going to ask for, if anything, on trade? Well, I was just on a White House briefing call with senior administration officials to talk about the trip, and it's, it's unclear um, whether he expects to really get anything uh, during his Beijing stop. I mean, he will talk about uh, and make a lot of noise about the need to rebalance the trade relationship, talk about the deficit issue. But the officials really talked about how uh, progress has been really difficult and they see China retrenching, they see them move away from market-based reforms um, and including on uh, some of these financial services issues, at least the industry doesn't seem to be expecting too much on this trip um, and are really looking at maybe in the spring when um, the next uh, economic dialogue meeting is scheduled to take place and maybe something being announced then. But they are looking for more of a comprehensive deal and, and it seems like there's still some pieces that need to fall in place before that can happen. All right. Well, uh, we'll leave it at that. Thank you, Gina. And thank you, Chris, for coming back on the program. Thanks for having me. Thank you both.
That's our show for this week. I'd like to thank Rob Cox, Gina Chan, and Chris Bedore for joining us. And kudos to our producers, Freddie Joyner, Ryan Warner, and Andrew D'Antonio. And our final thanks go to you, our listeners, for tuning in. Check us out every day at BreakingViews.com. Subscribe to The Views Room on iTunes, and please do share your opinions about our show. Join us again next week for another edition. This spot is brought to you by Eaton Vance, the symbol of advanced investing. What's inside your ETF? With Parametric Equity Premium Income ETF, you know. Inside, you'll find institutional expertise from a specialized team with deep derivatives experience. Get to know what's inside PAPI, the symbol of alternative income, at eatonvance.com symbols. Before investing, prospective investors should carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. The current prospectus contains this and other information and is available at eatonvance.com. Read the prospectus carefully before investing. Not FDIC insured. Offer no bank guarantee. May lose value. Not insured by any federal government agency. Not a deposit. Investments involve risk. Principal loss is possible. Distributed by Foresight Fund Services, LLC.